Coming up on this episode of Greyhound Nation, coursing and racing trainer Jackie Teal joins the show to talk about her life in Greyhound sport, including her wins at the Waterloo Cup. Stay tuned. The Nation is next. This is Greyhound Nation, episode 27, recorded January 8th, 2021. Jackie Teal, coursing and racing trainer. Greyhound Nation is a podcast for Greyhound enthusiasts produced by Greyhound Enthusiasts. To learn more about our show and its hosts, visit our website at greyhoundnation.dog. That's greyhoundnation.dog. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Greyhound Nation podcast. I'm Michael Burns. Now, here's your host, John Parker. Welcome back, Greyhound lovers. We have a guest today that's uh, spent much of her life in Greyhounds, training in both coursing and racing in Jackie Teal. Welcome, Jackie. Hi. So, Jackie, let's go back a little bit uh, with some biographical information and uh, tell us about uh, where you're from and how you got started in Greyhounds. Well, I'm from a little sleepy village called Malton, which is more famous for racehorses than it is for uh, for greyhounds. Um, and I've been involved with greyhounds since I was 10. Um, I, uh, I, As a child, I always wanted a pony. My parents couldn't afford one. So I got involved with the greyhounds instead. And it, got, it was a bit of a hobby that got out of control. <laughs> what was your first job with the greyhounds? Well, I was only 10, so I, I just used to help um, a local businessman out with his greyhounds. He used to breed quite a lot, a guy called Norman Jefferson, um, and he had a big um, feed company, and I used to just exercise them, clean them out, generally loved them, go to the track, fall asleep with them on the way back from the track <laughs> as, a te- as a child of 10. <laughs> and so this was racing originally, before coursing? Yeah, yeah I, I um, the first time that I ever went coursing, I was a bit sceptical. Obviously, I was very young and didn't really like the thought of the um, the the coursing itself. But it was a bit of one of those things that I had to suck it and see. And once I went once, I was absolutely, totally hooked. And it was nothing like what I expected it to be. You know, I've been told that more than once by people that I've taken coursing, uh, that they, it was completely different than what they thought. What were your surprises when you saw it? Well, I was surprised because I, I thought it would be quite a bloodthirsty going on. And it wasn't. I don't think there was a hair killed all day. And obviously, once you get more into um, into the, the coursing itself, you realize that there's hardly, there was hardly any hairs that were killed. Um, and it was like the fittest sub survive. And it, and obviously the slipper was very um, selective in what he chose for the greyhounds to slip behind. So there was no like weak ones that were hopefully that that, that were that, that were cast. So it was it was pretty. It was pretty. It, you just absolutely when the dogs were so close to you, working away, you just soon got hooked to it. It was just. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to explain until unless you're actually involved in it all, really, as you know, John. It is, it is, it yeah. really is. I mean, the first time I went to the water, my first coursing meeting was the Waterloo Cup in 1998, yeah. and it, it totally captivated me. I had no, yeah. I had my qualms as well, just as you mentioned. And once yeah. I got there and saw it, I thought this is fantastic. Yeah, and, and most of the people. It, what another thing what I found is the the people that were there. You could be absolutely anybody and there was no class everybody was of the same of the same level whether you had money whether you didn't have money where everybody was just of an equal it was just yeah and and and, and still continues we have still got friends from all over the country all over the world john including yourself so yes, and, it, and yes. that's still connected as uh, as sir mark prescott famously says it doesn't matter whether you're a snob or a yob you're going to get to get get along well at a coursing meeting. Yeah, and, and that, that's so true. That is just so true. What uh, what was the first coursing meeting you went to? I think it was Sherburn Farmers, which is just in a, a village about 10 miles away from from Malton. Uh, and it was the, the going, if I said it was something like what Newmarket was, you'll understand what I want to say. Yes. There was an abundance of hairs, but it was quite flinty. And what was your job at that first coursing meeting? I... I I don't think I can't remember taking a dog to slips, but I think I was probably picking up. I think taking a dog to slips was probably far too much responsibility for me in them days. <laughs> and picking up, 
for those that don't know, would mean that you would be you would be the lucky person that got to chase the dogs after the course was over and make sure that they uh, they, they were retrieved and brought back to the van and cared for and that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then then it would be the whole process of washing their feet and and giving them a massage and then making sure that they'd had a drink and and that they were comfortable and hopefully that they would be going again because they would run obviously more than once a day if you were successful. Yeah, yeah. Now, as you got to be an older teenager, what what did your jobs transition to being? Uh, well, as I got uh, as I was older, Norman, who, were, who was breeding the greyhounds at the time. Um, he offered me a job. He, he, as I said, said to you earlier, he had a feed company and I was sort of like working in it. Ten greyhounds at that stage. Um, and he had a, it was in this factory and I helped him in the factory a bit. So he, he actually he invented a job for me. And then as as it progressed, I started he offered me to take over the farm where the greyhounds were. And that's when I started when I was 20 odd. Um, training myself. Now, were you taking them to the track at this time as well? Uh, when I would be going to the track quite regularly when I was at school, um, and Norman used to breed his own greyhounds. Then uh, it was quite successful for for a small breeder, um, and I went used to go to the track, and we used to go to the, like the local casting meetings. Um, yeah, so so I would be probably taking over. What was it taking over? But I would be taking care of the dogs um i was probably training them but didn't really realize i was training them at the time um <laughs> and we used to take them cars and used to go to the track i would obviously be i was upgraded i could take the dogs to the slips and everything but in them days we there were the trainers at the track so we would take the greyhounds to the track to the trainer and I, we wouldn't have any any input with the dogs at all then they were like sight on site uh, so we would use the trainers that were at the tr- our local track, which was Hull, or Leeds, or Sheffield. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I started, and actually, fact, when I started track training, I was the youngest trainer in the country, obviously, and I was the youngest female trainer in the country at the time, which I would be about 23. So that's what you got your license at age 23 yeah. for, for track training. Yeah, tra- the, in them days, it was the NGRC, yeah. National Ground Racing Club. Now, did you have to have two different licenses, uh, one for coursing, one for training? Yeah, yeah, racing? it was an, N- an NCC um, license, which was the Carson Trainers license and uh, the NGRC license. And uh, to start with, I had um, I held both licenses. But as time progressed and when I got with John, we had quite a lot of dogs. So John took over the, um, the license for the Carson and I had the track license. It was just easier on a business basis that we had two different businesses yeah were you also the youngest coursing trainer at the time when you first got your license probably because there was quite a lot of older people doing it then. <laughs> yeah. yeah now did did any of the greyhounds you trained do both racing and coursing or was it a pretty uh, firm line between the two as to which dogs did which no not really i, I always did a bit of both if, if my if our own dogs um sometimes if they were going a bit jady on the track we would take them for to coursing or or, or if, if they were looking like they were quite keen and we'd try them on the track. So I've never, I've never, was never one that had, there was a definite line. Some yeah. of the, the casting owners didn't want the dogs to track end of. Some of them did and some of them liked to go and watch them have a meal and, and what have you. So, so yeah, I, I would never say they're just a casting dog or just a track dog. They were, quite a lot of mine were dual purpose. Did you find that all that coursing for the for the for the racing greyhounds, the ones that race more than course, did coursing make them keener on the track, or did it have any effect on their their abilities? Not, I don't. I wouldn't have thought so. To be fair, I don't think it really made a lot of great difference. I didn't, don't think it made them any better if they'd been coursing or uh, sometimes if they're a bit jaded on the track. That, and if they'd been naughty, then they had to go coursing because they'd maybe been. Uh, of over friendly with the opponents so um so they would maybe have to go across them because and that was a bit of an outlet for them as well and it, it did the ones that tended to be naughty on the track did they once they got to the coursing field did they behave themselves oh there? definitely yeah I, I can't ever remember one being naughty on the coursing field um i mean their the mind would be totally focused and quite often if you had a track 
uh, red dog, they would work a lot better than the, the typical type of crossing dog. Because in saying that there were, you had no allegiances which way you lied, but the greyhound, the track greyhound, would stay the 450, 650 a lot easier than what the casting greyhounds did. The casting greyhounds would be more sprinters, short runners, run up to 400 metres, and then probably need an oxygen mask to get up the home straight if they were doing 400 metres. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you were the, the not only the youngest, but the first woman uh, with a, a license, what did you find any uh, resistance from, um, shall we say, as we say here in America, the good old boy network? Um, well, some 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 of the older older lads that were on the track were a bit, um, I think, hostiles probably too. too it, 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 uh, they, 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 were, they weren't most welcoming to start, but once they got used to it, they were fine. Yeah. I think it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> and winning winning a few probably helped as well. Didn't yeah, it? probably did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you met uh, and mar- ultimately married your husband, John Teal. Tell yeah. us about how that came about. Well, that that again, that was to do with through, through the greyhounds. Uh, I, I knew I'd known John for John's a bit older than me, and I'd known him for for a lot of years. Anyway, we were casting, and we'd, we'd, when we were all out on a night, we all sort of yeah got friendly, and then the rest history. <laughs> what year did you get married? Uh, we got married twenty four years ago, or so so. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah, but we've been together for thirty odd years. So, yeah. and and was John coursing only when you met him? Yeah, he was when I first met him. Yeah, yeah, he, he just had he used to train a few dogs out of his back door, back not back door, back garden, and he used to um, be quite successful. Go over to Ireland, but he wouldn't go very far. He would just do the local clubs uh, like Old Yorkshire, Rydale, um, Sherburn. But then when we got, and I, I would be the same. But then when we got together, we sort of spread our wings a bit more, and we. We'd go down south. We'd go to Alsford. We'd go to Scotland. Yeah, it was like have. It, to be fair, in the winter, it was like the suitcase was just forever packed. <laughs> yeah, it was just like I can remember one day coming from Swaffham, which would be four hours south from here, going back home, swapping the dogs over, and going up to Scotland for the Scottish National, uh-huh. which would be another three and a half hours north. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So they were pretty, and we had a good team of staff at home as well, so which, which helped. So. How did you coordinate the in, in during the coursing season? How did you coordinate between the uh, coursing meetings and the and the race states? Well, the to be fair, the racing manager I always got on well. They they knew at the time that that I was a coursing trainer, and if we were on like two a two day meeting or whatever, I would probably ask for the day off if we were. And we, Back in the day, then we probably wouldn't be racing as much as much as what we do now. So there would maybe like I don't know, maybe only three meetings a week or four meetings a week. Well, and not maybe not as many races. Whereas not so much now since lockdown. But there would we would have, at Sunderland we would have five meetings a week. I mean, some nights in, during the summer they would be having sixteen races an evening. Um, uh-huh. So. So, as I say, the racing managers got on well with them, so they were always pretty obliging that way if we were away. Oh, the the staff, what we had back at home, um, we would organise it so they would go, one of them would go. Yeah. We we would be quite a big outfit at the time. Yeah. (laughs) At at the height of when you were training for both coursing and racing, uh, typically how many dogs would you have at your place? I would say we'd probably have... And they had something like 180 dogs, something like that. Oh, wow. And how much staff did you have to help you take care of? We them? had, obviously, John and myself were full-time, and we had three full-time staff and about 10 part-time. Yeah. There so and in England, coursing is not just a weekend activity. They, coursing is during the week and weekends and, and uh, every day of the week sometimes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah and it's often, good. how many of the meetings were multi-day meetings? Um, well, you get... Quite a lot of them would be. The local ones would probably, like Rydale and Sherman, there would be a one day probably on a weekend. Um, whereas on like Altcar, Scottish National, there would be the bigger meetings and there would be either Tuesday, Wednesday or Wednesday, Thursday. But in Yorkshire, because most people were working people that were going casting anyway, we tried to do it on a weekend so they didn't have to have two days off. Yeah, yeah. Now, 
what about conditioning uh, for coursing versus racing? Did, did you have any different regimens for the racing greyhounds versus the coursing greyhounds? Well, to be fair with the, with the, well, the yeah, it, the, the racing greyhounds run once a week and they would keep themselves fit and maintain the fitness that way. Whereas the track, uh, the coursing greyhounds, we would gallop them. We'd set off when we first start and we'd gallop them once a week, um, probably two months before the, the date that they were about to rate, to, to um, course. And then you'd build it up to two, twice a week and then three times. And then, then we would be on nearly every day galloping them. Uh, and then give them a bit of a rest before before the actual time that they were coursing. Yeah. Whereas the, the, the track dogs would probably yeah. get a gallop and then they would get a sprint trial and then they would have a 450 trial and then they would get themselves fit, race fit, because obviously you wouldn't want them too fit to be going grading onto the track because they'd be going too high a grade. So you'd want them in a lower grade so they're, they're improving and winning races rather than winning the trials. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you notice that there were any personality differences between coursing and racing greyhounds? Not really. They're all lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all of these greyhounds that you had, either for coursing or <coughs> racing, were they all owned by other people, or did you and John own some of your own? The it, it, again, uh, the coursing greyhounds were nearly always owned by people. Uh, the track ground because. Uh, well, we're not a gambling stable, any gambling kennel anyway. So because uh, we were away casting and everything, and we get paid for running the greyhounds on the track, we t- we took a, de- a decision quite early on that we didn't train for many owners because we were getting paid for the appearance money for the dogs anyway. So it more or less paid for themselves. So so we decided that we would own most of our own greyhounds, and then we would get a lot less hassle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you own most of the racing greyhounds, but you didn't own many of the coursing greyhounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And uh, when the coursing greyhounds were off-season, yeah. did they typically go back to live with their owners, or did they stay with you, or did you take them to the track? or What, what was, was kind it, of their – Again, it was different. Like Sally Merrison, she she used to like to take us, some of us home. Um, but the majority left them with us. And the majority of the casting owners didn't really want to, were interested in the track, so they just left, the, left they'd leave it to me, really. They'd leave it to yeah. me, whatever I wanted to do. Right, right. Did you, in, in, in terms of the financial arrangement, is it different for coursing with owners than it is for, for racing owners? Well, not really, because it, I, I'm a bit of a paid-and-be-paid person. Um, it's a set rate, and that's, that's the way it is. And, you know, they all cost the same to keep. So it's just a standard rate. Um, and there was no sort of uh, agreements from one thing or another. It's just that the rate is the rate sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And and were you were you um, in those days when you were also doing coursing? You were. It sounds like you were racing at more than one track. No, I wasn't. I was doing it. Well, originally I was at Hull, um, which would be a closer option than Sunderland because Sunderland's like a two hundred mile round trip. Oh. And I've done it. I've done it for thirty two years. This year, um, so originally, I for a brief while I was at Hull uh, and Sunderland until the dogs I transitioned them over. Uh, but it was just too much hassle, what with the casting and the track and everything else. So I decided to go with to Sunderland, yeah. So now you train exclusively at Sunderland, yeah, yeah. Okay, how many dogs do you have in training right now for Sunderland? Uh, right now I have um, about 30. Five, including I bred a litter of puppies, um, so I have about thirty-five uh, that with the racers and the trialers, and then I'll probably have another ten retired dogs that are um, seeking homes. I do quite a bit of work for the retired greyhound trust mm-hmm. or the greyhound trust, as we call it nowadays. And do you find that you all the greyhounds live at your facility? They don't yep. live with their owners, and then the owners meet you at the track and bring the greyhounds with them. No, that everything comes from uh, from on site. I'm I'm like a licensed kennel, so everything is on site. I mean, it, like nowadays, you have to have an audit. You have to have vet um, a vet come down and check that you're all all right and the dogs are in good condition. We have uh, our stipendary steward who does spot checks. Um, he'll he can rock up anytime, morning, noon, night, which is good. Uh, you know, there's nothing to hide, so it's good. 
good that they do that for them people that are, um that maybe are as high standard yeah now let's talk a little bit about the waterloo cup you've got a lot of experience there what was the first year you went to the waterloo cup the first year i went to the waterloo cup i took a little bit called linton missouri which i don't know whether you can ever remember linton missouri but she was uh, she wasn't very fast um she had a bye in the she, she got beaten in her first course and she went into the I, I'll say she got beat in the first course. It could have been the second. Anyway, she got a bike and she was at Lydia and she got absolutely run to death. So that was the end of her, really. But then I decided to breed her for Well, she was like the goose that laid the golden egg for me because she bred <laughs> absolutely dogs such as Linton High Flyer, Manhattan Dry. Uh, yeah, she, every dog that we put her to, she just threw really good English crossing dogs. How many litters did you have with her? I, she did, I think it was five. And she had uh, Hunter's Guide, Kerry Model, Crafty Thriller, Son of Gus, Andrea Fraggle, which were they weren't the um, the better ones, that, but the others were, were really all top class. Yeah. Now, when you and uh, did, did you go to the Waterloo Cup and take dogs to the Waterloo Cup before you and John were married? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And when was your first winner? Oh, I had a very very long time. <laughs> uh, it was 2002, my first winner. Uh, we were knocking on the door for quite a while. And then my first winner was uh, Petite Glory. Yeah. It was a bitch that I bought through a guy called Sonny Butler. And I actually didn't pay a lot of money for her. And a syndicate wanted to buy her. And John's forever crossed with me because I sold her for exactly the same amount as what I paid for her. Didn't put any transportation or anything like that on. But to be fair, we got some really good days out of them. We had some really good parties with them when she won the Waterloo Cup. Now, when you and John, after you got married and you were taking dogs to the Waterloo Cup, how many, what was the typical number of dogs you would take? Um, I think the last Waterloo Cup, I think we had 15 or 16 runners. That must have been an incredible task to uh, to take <coughs> care was. of all those dogs. How many vehicles? How many people? What? Give us uh, the lay of the land on well, that. We, we had, again, we had a good team. Uh, we'd take one girl with us. Laura used to go with us, a girl that worked, worked for us. Um, I had people, If when the dogs were beaten, I had vans come in to take them back home. You know, people that would come in and go in. And, um, yeah, we had two vehicles with us. And we in Southport, we used to take over. We had, there was a kennels. And they used to leave a block of kennels for us. So we, it was quite handy because on a night, the dogs would get a good night's rest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was, it was, it used to be fair. In all the <laughs> chaos, it did used to run pretty uh, clockworkish. Yeah. <laughs> it used to go what, a bit funny. How did you divide up the, uh, the work between you and John? Who supervised who and who did what? Well, I was always a supervisor. <laughs> 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 um, uh, and, Sometimes we'd have a bit of a difference of opinion, but most of the time everybody went on with what I said. Um, and obviously, to be fair, John would be there to give me a, a guiding hand if there was any decisions that shall we shout, we would discuss it. And if the dogs had been run too hard or there was picked up an injury, we'd discuss it and say, no, that's not running or whatever. Yeah. 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 Now, I know I know from watching uh, the, the film, The Last Waterloo Cup, that John's quite adept at organizing beats as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. when would at what meetings would he help organize the beats and you would do the training? Um, he would when we used to, like locally when it, like old Yorkshire, that would quite often be a two day meeting. Um, and he used to organize the beats there with that with Anthony Gillum. Uh, he was a landowner. Um, and he used to help out Rydale, which is another local one up east of his Tim East of his, the racehorse trainer. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I would have to take that on. And that, that would be pretty hard work because we'd have more runners than any other meeting. Plus, I had less help because John was in the beat. And then if he got cross, if somebody did something wrong, he would shout at me first. <laughs> <laughs> so in the in the in the non-coursing season, which that at that time the coursing season ended when? First part of March? Yeah. And then you would go, you would the, the coursing dogs would have their time off and you'd, yep. you'd switch over completely to racing. Yeah. 
And what would you, uh, would you go to more tracks during the off season, the off coursing season? Not really. I, um, I, I kind of made a bit of a decision that if I had any better dogs that they would, uh, I would put them with uh, another trainer because obviously I, I live quite the high up north. Um, so Harry Williams or somebody like that would take them for us. Um, and and I've, I've more or less concentrated on the track, uh, the Sunderland track rather than anywhere else. Because it, you've got, the only people that were getting rich out of open racing was the um, petrol companies. Because and it, you just get, when you're doing five meetings a week, and then you go into another track, and you're finishing fifth, and you might have had a 400 mile round trip, it just takes a bit of a cream off it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And unlike uh, our tracks here in the U.S., where you have what we call leadouts, young folks usually that yeah. take the greyhounds to the traps. Uh, the trainer does that in in uh, in England for the most yeah, part. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and to be fair, you can understand why. We used to went at Sunderland when I first started. They did used to have people that would parade for us, um, but then obviously, as everything financially, the track were paying them and one thing or another. So, and and to be fair, the dogs know that the, the staff that you take with them with you. So, uh, so it's better for them, especially if you get a bit of a nervous one. Yeah. Mm. So when you go to the track nowadays. What? Who do you take with you in terms of? Uh, to be staff? fair, quite a lot. I fly solo. To be fair, John goes with me um, occasionally, but I normally go on my own. Yeah, just by yourself. No, no, no yeah. staff members to help, and so not forth. really. No, no. But we've. I mean, we've wound down a lot. From as obviously the numbers uh, since um, since lockdown, one thing and another. Yeah. So, so we haven't got the, the the amount of staff. Obviously, what we had back in the day and there are, the people are to be fair people are as interested like um you know, in racing in general is what they were you know to getting staff now is a problem because nobody wants to work <laughs> yeah yeah we have the same problem over here yeah. as well yeah. what um uh what's the setup for our american listeners you know here in america the dogs are kept in a in a holding area called a jenny pit uh, where nobody can get to them except racetrack staff. What's the, where do they wait uh, until their race comes up at the British tracks? Well, what happens? I would, uh, I, I set off so a typical Thursday evening meeting. I'll set off at two o'clock on an afternoon. Uh, it takes me two hours to get there. So, and then when I arrive there, we let the dogs out for a wee, um, and then they, as you enter in towards the the weighing room, as we call it. We go in there and they checked the the scanned with a microchip. The rear marks are checked, and then the dogs are weighed, and then they get checked by the vet. Each one hands on vet veterinary inspection. Then we go into like the, the what, like the kennels, and there would be smaller kennels with wire fronts, and then the paddock steward he checks them again for the rear marks. To make sure you've got the right dog. You tell him what dog you've got. He looks at his sheet and he put, we put it into a kennel. They get a, a bowl of water just in case they're dehydrated or whatever, or they just want a drink. And then they're locked up until the, you go to the to the wrist, you know, just before the wrist, and then you get them ready. Um, and there's only me allowed, or my, me and my staff allowed to handle them. All right, but you're allowed access to them before they during the time they're waiting to race. No. No, they're no. locked down and, and nobody can get <laughs> No, to you've got, if there's a problem, obviously there's a vet on site. Uh, if there's a problem, the paddock steward would inform the vet and there'd be a, a tannoy that come over the tannoy or I would be probably down at the paddock anyway and we'd get the, the dog out and it would, if there was anything wrong, there would be, have um, obviously veterinary uh, advice on it and it would, if there, if it, I don't know, it could get stuck split its tail or anything or if it'd been ill or if you had any concerns you'd just say to the vet look can you open the kennel up can we go and have a look at such and such i've got a bit of concern it's it's panting a lot or and if you get a dog that's a bad kenneler which obviously got if it's barking all the time getting excited panting you can request to the racing office that it runs an early on in its race mm -hmm. they have to be kenneled for at least three quarters of an hour before racing um so you would say it was usually more than that because we trial before racing. So the dogs probably kennel an hour and a half. And then they, uh, the first race, uh, we start 
kennel in at 12.30, say, the first race is quarter past two. So obviously it's not been in the kennels as long and it's not getting stressed because obviously it knows why it's there. It wants to be out and it wants to be racing. It wants to be on. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess you've got some greyhounds. You have to wake them up in the in the kennel. Oh, some of them will roach on the back and they just oh, God, do I have to do this again? <laughs> <laughs> now then after the race, you you catch the your greyhound at the, at, we call yep. it the lure escape here yep. in the U.S. And then what's the procedure up. after that? Where so do you then take I, them? I would run over the track. No, I don't run, I don't know if you've seen me really recently. I don't run as, as good as I used to do. I've got a bad knee, so I can't run over there. So <laughs> there's, you've got a guy on the, what we'd call a pickup, and he's there and he, he tries to gather them up for us and helps us um, get all of them. And then we obviously release them back up, take them back to the paddock steward, to the paddock. And we obviously we've got the hot water and everything. We give them a wash, check their feet are all fine, check that they're okay. The vet watches them come off to make sure that they're sound. And if there's any problems, that um, the, the vet would deal with them. And then they do get their drink and go back to sleep for an hour or so. And then we'll go back home. Do they go back to your van? Uh, uh, they're not, we're not allowed to take them out of the kennels until 15 minutes prior to my last runner. Ah, okay. So that they're not, obviously, for obvious reasons, if it's warm, so that they're not stuck in the kennels all, all uh, the van all the time and it gets warm and they could get dehydrated and get stressy and everything. Yeah. Because the, yeah. the kennels where they are, they are air conditioned or heated, whichever you want to do. And then what's the protocol for taking uh, urine or blood after a race? Well, if, um, when we first get a dog, say from Ireland, when, we, when it's registered, they uh, we have to take it to the track and it has to be what we call marked up. So it gets marked up on a GBGB piece of paper. We have to sign for it and they have to have a urine sample then to make sure that they have no drugs in them before they race in England. Um, and if they did, if it did come back positive, then you would have to make sure you have to keep doing urine tests until it's negative um, before it's allowed to trial or race. And then after that, you would maybe you get a random sample at a race meeting. We've got what you call the um, random the sampling stewards, and they can request a sample of any dog at any time. It can be pre or post race. Uh, if you can't get a, um, a urine sample, then we'd have to do a blood sample. Yeah. Yeah. But once you've been once you've been allocated for a sample, you must do a sample. Yeah. Now, what's the typical time between races uh, that a dog will? Here in the U.S., it's usually they race every three to four days. What's the what's the standard in uh, in England? Well, it wouldn't be as much as that, especially nowadays. Uh, it would be I race on a at the moment on a Tuesday and a Thursday. My dogs would only get run once a week, mm-hmm. once every seven days. Yeah, yeah. Because there's quite an abundance of dogs at the moment, we would um, probably, some of them will only get three runs a month or something. Yeah, yeah. And always the same distance? Not necessarily. With the, with the, actually, the casting dogs. I get a few casting dogs from Ireland still. Uh-huh. Um, and the dogs just jumped on me. <laughs> um, we get a few casting dogs from Ireland, and they're, they're typically sprinters. That so with two six one meters, but uh-huh. the majority of four fifty, they, they do run an odd six forty race, but it is an odd six forty race. And will you shift a dog from one distance to another sometimes? Um, possibly, but not not regularly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, sometimes if you, they might give them a few sprint races to get them fit, and then go up to four fifty. Yeah. Now on a on a day that a dog has raced, and once you get home, what's the uh, what's the protocol for him or her? Well, we get back. Obviously, it's quite a fair old trek for me because it's two hours away. So we get back, and then um, if I've gone on my own, John will be there waiting for me. To, and we let them out into the paddocks, uh, let them have a leg stretch, uh, even on late on the night, and feed them, let them have a wee. And then we put the – obviously, it's very cold in England at the moment, so we put the PJs on and snuggle them back up into bed. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, how do you how do you uh, communicate with your um, with your owners typically? You Normally, have a day of the week that you call them, or what's the pra- uh, practice there? 
Uh, normally, what, what I'd like to say to them, like with the owners, especially when I had a lot, for them to get in touch with me because I might forget. You know, and when you when the dog first, if I have got any dogs in for owners, I'll let them know the first time they run. But with the the way that we are at the moment, with the internet, everything's pretty hands on. You just said just look on the website to see whether you've got a runner. Um, but I'm, I've got an open door. I mean, if people want to just ring up for a chat to see how the dog is, that's fine. I've got a lad that lives not far away. He likes to walk his dogs on a Sunday. Or it doesn't really matter if he's passing. He'll just call, say, can he call in? That's fine. Yeah. And do you have many owners that come to the track to see their uh, their dogs race? Yeah, I've got a few. Um, not To be fair, the way that Greyhound Racing has gone, there aren't that many owners about nowadays. Yeah. You've got a few. There's a certain... With some of them, not all of them, but some of them, you can get quite a lot of hassle, so it's just not worth the hassle. Yeah, yeah. In years gone by, people wanted to pay £200 for a dog and have 500 on it, and it's not my way of going on. <laughs> now, um, what about the um, uh, stakes races and the bigger races? Will you have more people of your staff, John, or the other members of your staff uh, uh, come to the race for the, the bigger races? Uh, possibly. I have a little story there. And I bought a dog off my Irish friends, um, Noel uh, Divoli, Brian Divoli's wife. Uh-huh. No, it wasn't. It was his sister, Anya, and it was called Alladale Bruno. And they would send their dogs over that just aren't quite good enough for what they want them for. Well, this was a proper fairy tale because when he came, I said to John, this little dog is a bit better than what we would normally get. It's what you mean. Well, he flew around his first trial. So, anyway, he went A1, his first ever race, and he was second. And then he won his next A1, and then he won his next A1. And I contacted Harry Williams and said, did he know of anybody who wanted to buy this little dog? And he said, go, I'll buy him. So Harry bought him. (laughs) Anyway, he went on and he won, and he won, and he won, and he won. And he eventually won the Classic, the Sunderland Classic, which Uh was worth 25000 which would be but, a big, big stakes. I mean, there's oh, yeah. only at the time, there's only, I think, three or four classics in the country. And he won one of these. And so it was a proper rags to riches story. I picked <laughs> him up off a casting field when I was in trim, uh, bundled him back home. And he, this dog just went and won everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but, uh, so he, he was always like one of our own dogs because we followed him everywhere where he went. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and he won quite a lot of open races. What year would this have been? Oh, that was quite recent. That would be about four years ago. And where is he now? Unfortunately, he broke his leg and he had to be put to sleep. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah broke it, but his leg quite bad. So, yeah, we were, were all absolutely devastated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, what about coursing in Ireland? You do a little of that, don't you? Well, I, I have been doing it up until the, the dreaded COVID. Yeah. Uh, but now it's all sort of died to death and they have, their own internal problems over there with COVID, with the aunties. Um, yeah, so so I haven't been, I, I was over there in November. I went to, uh, it was a Galway and Oranmore meeting, but it was at Glynn. Because um, as I said, the Divleys are our friends, so we went to support them. Liz Hall went with me. Um, so yeah, we had a really nice change, nice time there. And do you tend to take your own dogs uh, to uh, Irish coursing meets, or do you well, tend again, to take other people? I, I haven't been uh, competitive competing for about three years over there because of or two years since COVID. Mm-hmm. So I just took my, we just went for uh, just to support them. So I, up until COVID, yes, we were going over quite regularly. Yeah, but then then since COVID, we're, we've not. Now I know Aaron Atmore organized some. Uh, yeah. Associations for British bred uh, and Br- British owners and British bred greyhounds. Is yeah. that is that still happening? Well, no. Again, obviously, Aaron and I were uh, did a lot of traveling together because of, we would try to put all the dogs in one van, and so we that sort of as I say, the COVID killed that off really. Oh no, it was it was the hair. It was the the hair's got the virus, so that stopped it to start with, and then the COVID. So it's quite a while since since we've been. So is there? Do you think there'll be one this season, or do you think it'll there have to be wait one a this year? season? There definitely won't be one this season because they're virtually in Ireland. They're virtually locked down again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you're talking about Clonmel might even be behind, might 
be behind closed doors. They don't. They honestly don't know yet because the restrictions here and there they change every day. You don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go over to the Waterloo Cup a little bit. I know that's uh, that you have a lot of fond memories of that. How many yeah. How many winners did you and John train over the years? We only we had two. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which was you won't want to hear this, John Shashi when he yes. was. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, it was Petit Glory and Shashi that were our winners. And um, uh, Petit Glory was uh, 2002. Yeah, and he was 2005. How, how did you come to train her? Well, as I say, I bought her from a, a guy I knew in Ireland. Um, we'd had some litter mates, some previous litter mates uh, out of the bitch. And he rang me up and said, look, I've got this bitch for sale. So I, I bought her. She won a 16 bitch stake, and then she went straight to the Waterloo Cup and won the Waterloo Cup. That had to be a big day. It was a big day. What's the feeling like? It was it, it was indescribable. It was absolutely the elation. And it was like, but there was also a sadness because it was sort of like, well, things can't get better than this. It was just, <laughs> it was it was a bit bizarre. It was a really, really funny feeling. It was a wonderful feeling. And then, as I said, it was a brilliant crowd because they really, really knew how to party. So yeah. we parted that night. We parted the next day. And we had lots of parties afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you breed? Did you breed her uh, petite glory? We did. Uh, we had one litter out of her. Uh, unfortunately, she wasn't a great uh, dam. She had one decent dog called Bermuda Ruby, Rebel Bermuda Rebel. He wasn't a bad dog, but it wasn't nothing like what she was. Yeah. 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 And uh, did that give you? Once you won with her, did that? Did that give you the? the fever to, to to try to do it again? Oh, the, the, you, you never lose that fever. Never lose that fever that you want to do it again. Um, it was, yeah, it, you never lost it. And it was like, it wasn't one of them things that you'd won and you thought, right, I've done it now, I've finished. No, you just want to go and do it again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, at what point in the coursing season were you able to identify the greyhounds you had that you might kind of point toward a Waterloo Cup nomination? <laughs> Well, you'd have some indication on what we would buy dogs during the summer that would maybe run up for a trial start. I'd run up for a trial stake or from Ireland or my friend, the devil is again. Uh, she would say that this would be a decent sort of dog for you. So uh, even like as going on in the season, November time, she said this would be a dog for you. So we'd hopefully get them over, see if you could win a stake with them. Uh, we were fortunate enough that we had quite a lot of owners that had nominations. So we never had to, what you'd like, qualify for them. We had a really good rapport that we, that if I thought it was good enough, we wouldn't necessarily have to, we'd like to win a stake, but you wouldn't, it wasn't the be all and end all because you would at the, and I know it was a controversial way that they did it, but we all, we had, they had the back thing of the, that you could have a your nomination without running the, your dog to death. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and you you made a point. You you and John made a point of having runners at the Waterloo Cup pretty much every year, right? Yeah, yeah. And was, was you mentioned the fifteen number? Was that a typical number, or was that uh, an extra large entry that you um, had? Well, we would have quite a lot. We would have quite a lot. We'd have twelve, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when would you start your preparations for you know packing up and having all the getting all your food oh, ready? We, and you would be getting thick a week or two before I would be unbearable to live with me. I had we'd call it like Waterloo Cup fever. I would probably lose about a stone, which I could do to lose now, actually. But uh, there'd be no talking to me or anything because you'd look at a dog and something would go wrong with it. And um, yeah, so it was, it, I was probably pretty unbearable to live with for quite a while. <laughs> And and did most of your owners uh, that you had Waterloo Cup runners would most of them attend the cup? Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. And what was your what was your rule for whether they could come over in the at the van and, and visit? Oh, with the I, I never. And that sort of thing? To be fair, they would more or less leave me to get on with it. And if if an owner came over, I mean, some of the owners would be but younger and pretty hands on and would want to take the dogs to slips and things like that. Some of them would come after the dogs had run just to see that they were all right. Some wouldn't bother coming, just leave me and talk to me in the evening. Uh, normally they would come over if we had a break or something like that and just to see that the dogs are all right or not all right. Or I would maybe have to, if there was something wrong with it, I'd have to run over and tell the owner before it got out and everybody knew about it or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah. 
What about it? Did you uh, did you ever bet on your own dogs at the Waterloo Cup? You know, I just don't bet. I don't bet at all. I have no interest in gambling whatsoever. <laughs> no, John would maybe just have a flutter. He wouldn't bet on the Waterloo Cup um, necessarily. If we went to horse racing, he would maybe have a bet a ten. Yeah, yeah, but not really. No. Well, that's interesting because I, I, if I go to the track, I may have a bet on it on a dog just to have somebody to cheer for, but I'm kind of the same way. I'm, yeah. I'm I, I, it doesn't hold a lot of interest for yeah. me. And I just like to watch the dogs run. Yeah. I, and I may I add, I would probably on the track, I would be the worst tipster ever. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you'd want, you'd say, well, bet on my dog. It'll, it'll yeah. Win. Yeah. I just, I, you, don't, you, don't, you want to win every time. So you don't like to oppose your own. Um, yeah. And I don't take a lot of notice of anybody else's. So. Now, what was your evening when you were at the Waterloo Cup with dogs? What was your evening routine? Uh, we would get when we finished, we'd take them back to the kennels or, or wherever we were staying, and, and then we would uh, wash the feet off again, give them a rub down again, make sure they're lovely and warm. Maybe give them a bath if they were if we were into a final or something, and a good old rub down, um, and then just leave them and probably go and let them out for a wee later on. Yeah, um, and then we would sort of if, depending if we we're at home. I would have probably prepared some supper. Or if we were staying at an owner's, they would have prepared some supper. Or if we were away, we'd probably just meet up with a few owners and have an early night and ready yeah. to start again in the morning. Fall into bed exhausted uh, yeah. <laughs> that night. That had to yeah. be just wore you completely out. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the 2005 Waterloo Cup. We all have yeah. fond but sad memories about it. Shashi was your... Yeah. was your winner that year. Uh, tell us about how you came to train Shashi and, and, and so forth. Well, he, he was um, Ernest Smith who owned him. He bred him himself, and I trained his mum. So, so it was quite a, a nice to have done that. And they always liked him. Albert Shackcloth and Ernest owned him. And Michael Darnell went in with him as well because he, had, <clears throat> he didn't have a dog to run at the time, so he went in with him as well. So I had him, it was in Ireland to start with, and he wasn't quite good enough for trial sticks, but they thought he was good enough. Um, and I don't know whether he had an injury, I can't remember, but he, he didn't he didn't run a lot. And he came to me and he won a, a stake straight away. And then it was, I think it was second season. But the, thinking about that Waterloo Cup, after the first day, having all them runners, I had two dogs left, which was a nightmare, an absolute <laughs> nightmare. I was unbearable to talk to that day. I can remember because <laughs> I can remember Anthony Gillum coming over, um, and because I trained for him, and everybody said, "Oh, stay away, stay away." And he said, "Why?" And he said, "What's wrong?" And excuse my expression, I said, "Well, it's just, we're just having a bad day." And he said, "Why?" I said, "Well, everything's gone tits up." Why is that? <laughs> and he said, "And he said, oh, do you want me to go?" I said, "No, you can take your dog for a while anyway." She, I ended up. On the last day, I had two into the semi-finals, which was Shashi, and a lovely little bitch called Bellophilia, which uh, your dog, what you ended up having, yeah. beat her in the semi-final. But I would like, I have to say this, he wouldn't have beat her, but she went lame about five yards before the hair. If you ever watch it, you can see her chest. Yes. And her shoulder muscle was absolutely massive. It just She, she burst a, a muscle in the shoulder. Yeah. Um, so I, for one brief while, I could have had two in the final. But anyway, <laughs> we'll let you get to that. <laughs> so, what kind of dog was Shashi? What what personality wise placid, and so forth? Yeah, lovely placid dog. I had a few out of the litter, and they were all really nice dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So he was bred. No, he never had any. Never oh, you're talking any, about his litter mates. Yeah, his litter. His litter was um, a lovely litter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was that had to be unusual for you to have uh, that many lose in the first couple of rounds. Uh, yeah, it, it well it was, but then at the end of the day, I ended up with two in the semi-final, and obviously I, I won. Then I had two in the final of the purse, which I had to win that obviously, <laughs> and then I had one which was Elizabeth Stott's dog won it. Terry Richmond trained it. Uh, Bella Regalo, no Bella. Eden's Regalo was the one that got beaten in the plate. So yeah. I ended up with four finalists out of six. <laughs> so it ended up not being a bad day. Yeah, yeah. Um, what were you thinking as uh, 
as as the final was approaching and um i'll since since hardy admiral came over here to to live with us in the u.s yeah. what was your assessment of how shashi would you know what kind of a rival uh hardy admiral would be for shashi well the we always thought the the, the bitch was very good what uh beat, hardy admiral beat beat um, and I think if the if the bitch had stayed sound, I think the bitch would have probably beat Shashi, to be honest. Um, she won the Sefton in the in the autumn of that year, and, and she was just made of absolute steel, grit, determination. When she won the Sefton, she was something like nearly two minutes down on the handicap. Uh-huh. So that was like over five, four rounds. She was two minutes, and that's a big handicap. Yeah, and she won, and she won it well. So she was, it was as I say, I, yeah, she was. Uh, but the, I mean, the feeling was like obviously anticipation and um and everything that went with it. And it was really, it it was a bittersweet because obviously I knew it was probably going to be the last time that I ever put a dog up a field. It was definitely going to be the last time that I ever put a dog up the withens. Yeah. Um. So it was a bit sad. It was happy, sad, and I and, and I was fortunate enough that. I was the one that was allowed to be happy, sad. There was a lot of people that were just sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, was Shashi ready? Did he, did he, was he plenty fresh or was he down on he time? He was really or? fresh. Yeah, he was really fresh. Yeah, it was good. He definitely led, uh, led Admiral in the, in the run up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then he put that, it was one turn and he picked up, didn't he? Yeah. 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 So yeah. what was the feeling when, when uh, Judge Bob Burden raised uh, the flag for Shashi? Oh, it was it was fantastic! It was fantastic! It was, yeah, it was really good. It was um, it was such a you know, as you say, it was such a a, a day of mixed emotion. It was a bit uh, sweet there. You knew that that you had won, but it was uh, yeah. pro- probably the last one. There was still some hope that the hunting uh, act might be overturned, but um, uh, well, you know, I, we all I think knew, a, especially the way the world has gone now. I just, I mean. I can remember somebody saying to me beforehand, before with, with all the hunting bill and everything, just watch out for greyhound racing because once they've got the casting and the hunting, they're coming after greyhound racing. And and I said this to one of the managers, and he said, "Oh, that don't be silly. They won't ever come out. We're chasing something mechanical. They won't come after us." And how how the world has changed. Yes. You know, just with yeah. I, I hate it actually because everything I do, they want to ban. <laughs> <laughs> are they after? Uh, are they they're after horse racing to some yeah, extent yeah, as well? They, right? they, you get feel yeah, everything's gone a bit bonkers. Yeah. Mm. What look into your crystal ball for us and tell us what you think? Uh, where about what about greyhound racing in uh, in Britain? Is it is it going uh, to do well? Is it is it going to continue on? Well. I think it will continue on. I think there'll be less track. I don't know how many tracks. I think I saw the 16 tracks, I think, at the moment. I think it'll probably get, you know, they'll keep chipping away and chipping away. Um, and the, the, I mean, the welfare standards are, are fantastic nowadays. Um, unfortunately enough, that we, I, I work for Sunderland and they're on by um, ARC and they've just plunged a lot of well overdue money into, into it. So, it's it's made it so that it's a bit better living. Um, you know, you're able to to afford to do it more, but there just aren't the young people coming through. To be fair, you know, yeah. you've not got the at the moment you've not got crowds coming in because of COVID and everything else. Well, people just find something else to do. Um, and I know, like with a lot of the trainers with their children, unfortunately, like my children aren't really that interested in greyhound racing. They'll come to help me. But they've not got that passion that that I had. Yes. Um, and people just find something else to do. And w- when you look around, we're all. I mean, I I'm probably still one of the younger ones, and I'm 57 next week. So mm-hmm. you know, it's it's sad, really. But I I hope it it continues. I, I would be my twilight of it, really. Well, do you do you? What are your plans? You're going to keep on keeping on as long as you can walk? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Because I'm, I don't walk as well as I did. Um, <laughs> I'll continue at the moment, but I don't know how long that moment will last. Put it that way. How many greyhounds do you have in training now? Uh, I think on my strength this week I have twenty-two, and I say I've about twelve to trial. Yeah. 
So, so yeah. And do you, uh, what about some of your personal greyhounds? Have you kept those uh, on as well, pets or breeding stock or do you place well, them? Well, I, I did, a, I, had a, I bred up a bit, Bruno's sister actually, um, last year and then pups are just about to run. Um, so, but I've rehomed her and I just feel that nowadays there's so many people want, which the tide has changed, so many people want uh, retired greyhounds now, I just think, well, let, I'll let them go and sit on somebody's sofa. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, an, it's a nicer option for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your work with the Greyhound Trust. Tell us a yeah. little bit about that. Well, they, um, well nowadays, uh, is, is it getting a bit dark in here? Because the, the no. light is going. No, looks fine. Um, the uh, the Greyhound Trust, What now, when you we, have, we register a greyhound, we have to pay a £200 bond. Uh-huh. And then, then at the end of its career, um, the, the dogs are neutered and they go into the retired greyhound trust or greyhound trust or whatever, a charity, and they get another £200. So that, that sort of pays for its neutering and its kenneling for a little while. Um, so there's a, a, a non-put-to-sleep policy with all greyhound racing now. I think it's all greyhound racing now. So any dog that's injured automatically goes to a... Um, a center, a vet place that it can be, re- re- you know, repaired, re- mended by hook or by crook. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. typically, do the greyhounds that are going to be retiring from your kennel, do they live with you until they're rehomed, or do they go to a kind of a halfway place where they're false? Well, no, but because I do quite a bit of work for them, they normally stay with me, or I do work with a, a lady called Alison Waggett from Durham. Um, so yeah, we not we normally we work quite well together. So they would, if if we had something that would say be cat friendly or dog friendly or vice versa, Alice and I would work together. And another lady, Karen Fraser, she would um, she work she runs the North Yorkshire branch. And who screens the adopters? Do you do that, or does somebody with the Greyhound Trust do that? No, How does that work? It all depends on location because Yorkshire is quite a big place anyway. And if it's local to Malton, like, a lot of it's done on Zoom nowadays or WhatsApp. So you can make sure that the, the kennels are that not the kennels, the garden is secure and that it looks okay in the house. And then they do follow-ups and what have you. And do you hear uh, often from the, the adopters as oh, the yeah, dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they keep in touch quite often. What's the what's the rule right now? Can they bring their dogs to the track to for for visits and so forth to watch the no, races? No, you can't no, do the, that. The only dogs that are allowed at the track are the ones that are racing. Yeah. And do you go to any uh, Greyhound Trust events where they have like reunions of the Greyhounds? No, they do. do. I don't actually go to them because my life is so manic. I don't actually go to them, but they do run them locally. Yeah. 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 Well, so Jackie, what's next for you? You're going to, you say you're going to keep on for a while. Um, I've I've not, at the minute, I've no immediate plans to do anything else. But uh, as I say, I'm getting a bit older and um, we'll have to just see how things go. What about breeding? What's your breeding activity? No, I'm not now? a big breeder. Um, as I said, the bit, the blue bitch that I had, I rehomed her, and it was the. I must have had it was in, during COVID. I must have had a rush of blood to the head because it's a lot of hard work. Is breeding. <laughs> <laughs> I know Kim's got some pups at the moment. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, Jackie, it's been a great conversation. We appreciate you spending part of your yeah. day with us, uh, and um, uh, give our best to everybody in your family. And yeah. uh, good luck uh, with uh, your daughter's riding in her first uh, oh point-to-point gosh, horse race tomorrow. So <laughs> touch wood and, and good luck. Come yeah, home safe. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. Right, bye. Listeners, we'll be back with the next episode. Please join us on Greyhound Nation, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you're not a regular listener, be sure to follow Greyhound Nation wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Great Nation Show, follow us, and you'll get notifications every time we release a new episode. You can also get new show notifications when you subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. If you like the episode, leave us a review on our Facebook page or your favorite podcast app. You can also send us feedback or questions via the contact form on our website at greyhoundnation.dog. That's greyhoundnation.dog. This episode was produced in collaboration with host John Parker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Dimitri Taras. 
thanks to Jackie Teal for her guest appearance on today's show. I'm Michael Burns, and you've been listening to Greyhound Nation.